For great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts, the TNT Shop is now open at tntradio.live. Patrick Henningsen and TNT. And welcome back to the Patrick Henningsen Show today, Monday the 19th of February 2024. I'm Basil Valentine in for Patrick. Very interesting little vignette in the news at the top of the hour there with James O'Neill. Boris Johnson would be a much more likely winner of the general election than Rishi Sunak. Who knew? 52 to 39, a significant margin. Extraordinary, really, when you consider Johnson's appalling record. But hey, he does at least have some sort of personality, even if it's extremely unpleasant and bombastic. Whereas Sunak is so insipid and pathetic, um, as well, of course, as being a hardliner on all the major issues. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see the Tories ditch Sunak. The Conservative Party is, after all, the most successful political organisation in the world over the last 300 or so years and has a habit of winning general elections in Britain. And uh, it's not as if Starmer's Labour Party are popular. Uh, they got 5,000 fewer votes uh, in their Wellingborough by-election win than they did at the last general election when the party, of course, was led by Jeremy Corbyn. But they managed to win the seat because the Conservatives lost even more votes uh, on a very low turnout. The short and simple message from the UK electorate being, we don't like either of you. We don't like any of the parties on offer. So I expect to see a resurgence of independence. And the best thing we could hope for in Britain would be a hung parliament after the next general election. Leaving that on one side for the moment, I'm delighted to say I'm now joined by Swedish geopolitical analyst and author Mats Nielsen, all the way from Stockholm, to break down further some of the ramifications of the Navalny death and its implications for Europe. Now, some of you may remember, in the early 1970s and repeatedly endlessly on TV, uh, there was a very successful sitcom called Dad's Army, starring the late John Lowe, Arthur Bejere et al. Very funny it was too, and it ran for about six or seven years. It depicted the antics of the Home Guard, as they were known in the Second World War, which was comprised of men too old or too young to enlist in the regular army, but uh, they were militarized and nevertheless equipped with rifles and other rudimentary equipment. And in the event of a German invasion, which was considered highly likely in the autumn of 1939 and early 1940, and only averted by, of course, the success of the RAF in the Battle of Britain, uh, the Home Guard were due to swing into action, shooting German invaders with their Lee Enfield rifles, bayoneting them if necessary, uh, and uh, performing all sorts of acts of sabotage on the German invaders. Now, it seems Finland has taken up a similar cudgel with respect to Russia. Uh, NATO's newest member, says The Guardian, which shares an 830-mile border with Russia, plans to open hundreds of new shooting ranges to encourage more citizens 
to take up the hobby in the interest of national defence. Matt, are we about to see a Finnish dad's army against the phantom threat of the Russian bear? Yeah. Hello, Basil. Uh, short question is, no, we're not, because whatever the Finns put up, it's going to be a whole lot better than the dad's army of the Second World War. Uh, you have to remember that both Finland and Sweden are a country of hunters and outdoorsmen. And as both the Finnish and Swedish Home Guard are an old part of the military system in Finland and Sweden. And this uh, idea of expanding the amounts of shooting ranges isn't per se brought on by the NATO membership. It was actually uh, uh, it was actually uh, ordered to be looked into uh, when before uh, Finland joined NATO, due to the fact that the amount of shooting ranges had decreased by seventy percent since the nineteen nineties. And uh, the reason the government said we have to increase the amount of shooting ranges is because Finland has a lot of hunters, sports shooters. And you have to remember that almost everyone in, in Finland, or not everyone, but a, a whole lot of people are still within the military, contracted as reservists. And then you have the hobby shooters. And, you don't, and don't forget the policemen, the border guards, uh, the animal control people, uh, the the hunters that are there on uh, diffi uh, difficult situations with wildlife. So Russia is just actually, I, I hate to tell you, it, it's not that big of a thing when you break it down and look at it if you read the Finnish news, uh, as I have done. So the Ministry of Defense, and when you break it down and look at it, if you read the Finnish news, uh, as I have done. So the Ministry of Defense and the Armed Forces of Finland are, of course, happy about it. But it's not primarily something that has been put in force due to a, a Russian scare. Uh, they, they need it to be ready. And they need it as an integral part of the Finnish defense strategy. Uh, the whole, the whole of the Finnish nation is has always been ready to go to war. They, they still, they still have the memory of World War II, kind of fresh within uh, their history and their tradition. So, in order for every member of society to be as ready as they can be. The government said about two years ago, we have to increase the number of shooting ranges so everyone that has a gun can have an up-to-date permit. And if the need should arise, they can be ready to use that gun in a way that's not, uh, not for hunting animals, but for hunting an enemy. So, so this is... Uh, the Finns are well versed with their guns, and uh, it's—I uh, would say—it's a—it's an interesting piece of news. But I think the Guardian tried to make a mountain out of a molehill. Frankly, you're not suggesting that the Guardian is engaged in warmongering, are you? And 
Oh no, far, to, far, far, <laughs> never. See, far be it from seeking me. to subtly ramp up tensions and fears. Um, last year, did it finish? Go on. No, I, I can I can say one 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 slightly ironic thing about all this is that the uh, the EU, as you know, is now all ramped up and and uh, getting on their fighting gear, and and von der Leyen and everyone else want to be seen with a helmet and a flak jacket. But the interesting thing is that uh, the EU Commission had a proposal for restricting the limit or putting a limit on lead contaminating ammunition. And this is is really tough for hunting nations like Sweden and Finland. So th this had a devastating impact on the access of ammunition for Finland and Sweden uh, before uh the Russian uh, SMO before the security scare. So you had to, Finland had to work from repairing damage that the EU's commission's environmental proposal had put on Finland to bear. So this, this discussion, uh, tricking exemptions for certain group of shooters and stuff like this used to be high level diplomacy. Now, of course, the environment is yesterday's news. Greta is uh, buried somewhere because now it's all <laughs> depleted uranium and ammunition and, and shooting ranges and uh, lead all over the place. Environment doesn't matter anymore, as you know. But it, it, it's just ironic that, that first you, you care a lot about something. And then when the military industrial complex says it's time to change the tune, the politicians all changed their tunes and no one is talking about the environmental impact of lead anymore within the EU. So so there you have it. It's it's interesting news, but it's nothing really to do with, with uh, a factual fear of Russia in Finland. It's just the Guardian warmongering and fearmongering, such as they perhaps tend to do sometimes, if if I may say so. They certainly do in this century, uh, in the last century, uh, the Guardian tended to promote peace. Uh, they do also point out that the Finnish Defence Training and Education Association, the MPK, put on 116,000 training days last year, an increase on previous years when they were usually about 50,000. So I think it's fair to say that, you know, joining NATO, the Russian scare has had an effect on the certainly the mindset of the Finnish Ministry of Defence, which claims it plans to safeguard the activities of Finland's shooting ranges and promote the establishment of new shooting ranges. So uh, we'll see on that one. Uh, something else that's very bad for the environment, but particularly bad for the individual, of course, is Novichok. And uh, the uh, wife of the late Alexei Navalny uh, is now claiming that the Kremlin is waiting for the Novichok poison to leave his body before um, they release the body, uh, his body being apparently bruised and lying in a morgue somewhere. Uh, this has just come out in the last half hour. So uh, while I don't want to uh, quiz you about things which we uh, result in speculation 
Um, she seems to be now the latest darling of Western media. Um, Alexei Navalny's mother has been told she must wait 14 days to receive her son's body as authorities conduct a chemical examination. And this is movie's leading suspicions that Vladimir Putin's critic was poisoned with his wife alleging today that the Kremlin is waiting for the Navy version to disappear from his body. Uh, of course, there's no evidence that he was killed by a nerve agent. He died from a blood clot. Does uh, Novichok cause blood clots, Mats? And uh, do you think that the Kremlin are perhaps withholding his body for these reasons? Yeah, Novichok causes mental degradation amongst Western media pundits, I would say. <laughs> uh, it's... It's obviously, it's obviously just a name that's uh, used used in order to propagate uh, propaganda. Novichok, of course, any, any anything is possible due to the fact as we don't know yet. We don't know anything. There's been uh, nothing official, but for some odd reason. Uh, Everyone in the West seems to know exactly what happened in a prison somewhere off in the Russian Arctic, above the Russian Arctic Circle. Uh, but, I mean, it's not that it's as if the Western or, for, for example, the British government can uh, make a comprehensible uh, autopsy of Dr. Kelly. But it's easy for them to conclude what happened in, in Russia. Uh, something fishy going on there, I would say. Uh, I'm thinking it's uh, who benefits. Uh, I think that uh, Navalny's death came at a very opportune moment. Everyone was gathered in Munich and uh, Navalny sadly passed away. Uh, I was no fan of Navalny. He, he, he didn't have a... His politics had nothing to do with, with my uh, politics. Uh, a far-right fringe figure. But still, he had a family. He, he had a mother. Uh, he, he could have had uh, siblings or, or relatives that, that will generally mourn him. And I don't w wish death upon anyone. So uh, it's sad that he died. But the most plausible thing is that he actually died from a blood clot. Or the second most probable cause is that uh, once again, the sticky fingers of the MI6 were able to reach him by paying someone off. Who knows? But for Russia or Putin to actively use Novichok to kill uh, Navalny, it, 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 it's, ju it's just so silly. I don't even know where to begin. Why, why would they even bring in, a, a, according to legend, extremely the most potent uh, poison in the world? Why would they bring that into a prison environment and risk killing everyone in the prison? Why not just strangle him or uh, put, make make him slip on a piece of ice somewhere? I, I, you know, it's it's just I'm just uh, well, I'm just I'm just flabbergasted that that they're even running with running with this news. But it's been picked up by all the major uh, news media in the West, uh, Sky News and Yahoo, and uh, I think Deutsche Welle had Novichok re just recently. Uh, I haven't looked at the Swedish uh, newspapers, but I'm guessing Novichok will be in the Swedish newspapers soon as well. 
Yes, before we come to the latest extraordinary piece of warmongering by The Guardian, um, you make a very valid point, which is that there was no advantage to Putin for murdering this bloke. He uh, just launched a charm offensive with the help of Tucker Carlson, which appeared to be bearing some fruit, if not the return to detente uh, that some of us had hoped. Um, and uh, as the vice speaker of the Slovak parliament, Lubos Blaha, has pointed out this morning uh, in a statement, he said, it's sad, of course, that the man died, but it's strange that the whole West is now cheerfully promoting conspiracy theories and his death has not even been investigated. Putin definitely didn't need his death. Navalny would have had to spend the next decades in prison anyway, and he didn't threaten anyone politically. According to officials, the cause of his death was a blood clot. We don't know anything else. It's being investigated. Everything else is conspiracies. I will not pretend that I will cry all night because of Navalny. Thousands of children are dying in Gaza and the media spit on them. They will now talk on air for a week only about this one American agent. They better look at what the British and Americans are doing to Julian Assange, who is in custody on the verge of death in this glorious West, which prides itself on freedom of speech and protection of journalists. Let them remember how they remained silent when the American journalist Gonzalo Lira, who criticized Zelensky, recently died in Ukrainian custody. They didn't even remember it. And today they will moralize about Navalny's death. Again, it's always sad when a person dies, but this is pure hypocrisy. And uh, it strikes me that uh, Lubos Blah has hit the nail fairly squarely on the head there, Mats. I don't think anyone could say it better. It's just, why would Putin want to murder him? That The man is basically forgotten within Russia, and he's, he's yesterday's news with his anti-corruption shenanigans, and uh, he was placed safely away in prison. And he, he, the prison regime was quite lax, considering that he was still able to access his ex or ex, his Twitter from time to time, and he was able to communicate with his cronies in the West. But now, uh, in the in the midst of an for Russia an existential struggle in Ukraine, and with all the powers in of the Western world uh, centered in Munich, suddenly then Putin decides it's time to off Navalny. I, I mean, if you check your notes, nothing there makes makes any sense. Uh, to me, it's it's obvious. Either he, by a coincidence, I don't believe in them generally, but by a coincidence, he actually had a blood clot and died. Or, if there were some shenanigans, once again, I would look, or I would trace everything back to Britain. Uh, Bereshovsky, Litvinenko, Skripals, now Navalny. It's cheap MI6 propaganda. And uh, they're always there, and they're basically always involved. Uh, it's as for the Novichok. I say Novichok is just uh, chemistry tricks. Uh, whenever they need the Western media to run with something, they throw it in Novichok, and everyone grows scared again. And people need to grow scared again. The U.S. public needs 
to grow scared so that their Congress can give more arms and more money to Ukraine. The European Union voters need to be scared because you have to remember within the European Union, we are heading into a European parliamentary election. So we need to be scared as well. And what better word to scare the European Union public than once again using the word Novichok? Very good point, Mats. And unfortunately, these events are often used as a springboard for more extreme policies by the West, whether uh, ramping up the threat of all-out war or the clampdown on dissidents. We're going to take a short break now. When we come back, the latest bizarre article in the dreaded Guardian, once a bastion of liberal enlightenment, now a cheap neocon war rag, as we will hear after this short break. TNT's Jeremy Nell. Nice comment here from Rebecca. She says the youngest people um, I work with are a bit more mature, but their interactions with the public is stifled. And she's referring to the excessive use of cell phones and social media and how it's making them so antisocial also. The business is open six days a week. One of his staff members formally requested that they shouldn't, you know, that they could they be given permission not to have to work on Wednesdays so that they could help at the dog shelter. Now, as you know, I'm a dog lover. I have hunting dogs. I've got dogs coming out of my ears, my Malinois. And this dog, this Malinois, is bright even by Malinois standards. She can do crossword puzzles. Is lying under my desk at the moment feeling sorry for herself because she's just come on heat for the first time and she's completely bewildered. She doesn't know why she's bleeding to death. It's not about whether it's a good or a bad thing to work at animal shelters. That's a delightful thing. It's a noble thing to do. But who in their right minds goes to their boss and says, would you mind, I'd rather not work on Wednesdays if it's okay, because I've got other priorities in a, in a town down the road. Jeremy now on today's News Talk TNT. In a democracy, the majority vote rules. But in most democracies, you can only vote for change every three or four years. To understand what people want, governments and political parties use focus groups. These focus groups can include as little as 20 people. Australia is a country of over 25 million people. Does making decisions based on 20 people sound fair to you? Have your say. Be heard in between elections. Download the 4MySay app now. That is number 4, MySay. If you're talking about it, we're talking about it. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. And welcome back to the programme, The Patrick Hennison Show, with me, Basil Valentine, in for Patrick today, Monday the 19th of February. And my eye was drawn this afternoon to an extraordinary article in The Guardian, purporting to be an opinion piece, but really just warmongering propaganda, uh, published by somebody called Olga Chiz, C-H-Y-Z-H. I'm not sure if that's the correct pronunciation. Um, Olga is described as a researcher in political violence and repressive regimes, and that she is an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science mm. at the University of Toronto. And here she goes. It is difficult not to equate the untimely death of Alexei Navalny with the death of Russian opposition. With just a few weeks before the sham election scripted to result 
in Putin's appointment for a fifth term as Russia's president, Navalny's death foreshadows a grim post-election future for Russia, Ukraine and the world. Um, this dark turn of events is not only a tragedy for Russia, Russia, it's a chilling signal to advocates of liberal democracy everywhere. I mean, you know, we don't know how he died. Somebody obviously hasn't told her that. There is no evidence yet that he was murdered. Uh, but this woman goes on to say that uh, she thinks that it's the precursor to uh, Putin wanting to take over the rest of Ukraine. This suggests any potential change in Russia now hinges on external influences. Ironically, Russia's greatest hope for a liberal future is Ukraine. For the West, the death of Navalny might be the last wake-up call before it's too late. The time to support Ukraine is running out. There have debates in US Congress over the latest aid package and the EU's hesitation in prioritizing its own military industrial production. My goodness, this comes straight out of the out of the Nazi playbook. We must prioritize our military industrial production. Putin is devising his most ominous scheme yet. The West must brace itself for a post-election Putin, an unrestrained despot determined to achieve his objectives at any cost. My goodness, they give her a job for writing that kind of nonsense. Mats, uh, you know, it's so disappointing, really, that these airheads are given a platform to promote what is effectively warmongering conspiratorial claptrap uh, at a time of strained international relations. Yes, it's uh, it's. I think it's just history history repeating itself. Uh, as as you know, uh, it's it's legal history, which which is my forte, and thus uh, history comes comes into a fair bit or a fair amount of that. And I'm I'm seeing or I'm feeling uh, the same vibes that I guess my parents could feel during the Vietnam. It's now we have, it's always we have to ramp up support, but it's no longer we have to ramp up support for a criminal South Vietnamese jun junta or, or a government. It's now we have to ramp up support for the Ukrainian government, because if we don't, Russia is going to run all over Ukraine and then continue all the way to Paris or Trafalgar Square. It was the same during the Vietnam War. If we don't stop the communists or the North Vietnamese or the Chinese in South Vietnam, they're going to go all the way to Australia and they're going to have their afternoon tea in Sydney. Uh, That's right. That was, that, that was, was the paranoid nonsense coming out of uh, yeah. the United States. I mean, believe it or not, I can remember it. <laughs> All yep. that time ago in the early 1970s, I remember um, asking my parents why there was a war in Vietnam and why the communists had to be stopped. And uh, one way or another, the answer was because otherwise they will come here. They will take over the world. Uh, of course, at that time, there was a, uh, a rather synthetic, but nevertheless pronounced ideological divide between the West and Russia, communism, yes. Uh, yes. you know, uh, the, the remaining authoritarianism and totalitarianism after the defeat of fascism, uh, yes. we still had communism as a common enemy. Uh, 
I think I'm right in saying that the only really nominally communist country left in the world is now North Korea. Uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't call yeah. China communist for one moment. So there's no ideological difference. So um, instead, the fear has to be confected. The enmity has to be um, inflated beyond all possible rationale. And that's what seems to be going on at the moment. You know, enemies are enemies simply because we say so, not because of any meaningful evidence. Very much so. And and thanks to thanks to, to the special military operation or the war or the invasion, uh, the the good old domino theory is is back in swing. It it was long derided. In the years following Vietnam, everyone was making fun of it. But just look at it. I, speaking to you now, I realize it, it's made a it's made a stunning comeback tour. Uh, President, was it? Yeah, it, it was President Biden. He I think he said uh, not that long ago, perhaps a month or two ago, he was on about if Putin takes Ukraine, he won't stop there. It's important to stay in here for the long run uh, putin is going to keep going and we we will soon have american troops fighting russian troops and when he made that speech i remember thinking yep that's pretty much the speech that the american presidents made back in the 60s where where you know where they said that north vietnamese vietnam was spurred on by communist china and they were out to defeat American power, and uh, they were going to to crush the Western world. So that we had to resist there. And uh, it's we're back to a situation where the policy of lying is the ruling policy amongst the politicians of the West. It's and the, and they're lying not 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 to anyone smart enough to listen in Russia or China or India or, or Iran, they're lying for the domestic consumption. They're lying for the propaganda at home to you and me, to our relatives and to our friends. They're lying to the media and trying to deceive our Western nations to continue a war to ignore the causes of the war, to ignore the potential stakes that this war may lead to, uh, uh, basically a third world war. And all that is supposed to be addressed later because here and now we have to give more money to the military industry. We have to put up a fight against Russia because Russia is heading towards Paris if we don't stop them. Which is, of course, ludicrous. Russia doesn't have any interest or any capability, for that matter, to reach France again, like they did during the Napoleonic Wars. But it's such an easy sell. So, so the politicians of the West, while they're having their lobsters and their beers and their drinks in Munich, are laughing all the way to the bank. Because who's financing uh, their, their paychecks right now? Of course, the profits from the military industries are. It's the same. It's the same old story repeated in 1914. Is now repeated in 2024. 
sadly, we learned nothing. Here's uh, something really uh, off the charts, bizarre. Uh, the acknowledged xenophobe who had his prisoner of conscience status removed by Amnesty International two years ago, I'm talking, of course, about the late Alexei Navalny, uh, yes. is to have his name written on the work of the European Union. Joseph Borrell, the European Union foreign policy chief, has made the following post on X. I am proposing to EU member states to rename our global human rights sanction regime, the Navalny regime, hmm. to honour his memory for his name to be written on the work of the EU in the defence of human rights around the world. I mean, you know, this guy was a blatant racist. Um, I, I think, I, I, yeah, I, I think even a few cockroaches will be offended by that. Yes, that's right. He, he likened some fellow human beings to cockroaches and proposed their extermination, I believe. Yes, yes, he did. And they were, I think it was the central uh, central Asiatic uh, people of, of the Russian Federation. He, w he wanted to go back to, to Central Asia and he, he likened them to cockroaches. Charming. Uh, and it seems the European leaders are trying to outdo each other um, at this uh, EU ministers meeting today. Uh, the Lithuanian foreign minister, Gabrielis Landsbergis, launched a scathing attack on fellow leaders, imploring them to treat the situation with renewed vigour. We spent two years discussing, trying to figure out the way we can help Ukraine bit by bit. But unfortunately, since we did not formulate a strategic goal for what we are trying to achieve, we're unable to declare that we're in this for the victory. He said. Yes, and, and this, this, is, this, is, this is what scares me. This is what scares me right now, because I'm seeing a psychological uh, effect here where Basically, the more dire Ukraine's strategic prospects have become, the more these delusional Western leaders are feeling compelled to create imagined pathways to declare total Ukrainian victory. D despite the incontrievable evidence that no such pathway exists whatsoever, which means that every time they say Ukraine will prevail, they are returning to a delusion. And it's a delusion that's costing lives. It's a delusion that's costing the lives of a whole generation, or I, I would say three generations of Ukrainian men. And the sooner the policy makers on both sides of the Atlantic, in the EU and in the United States, in the United States, grasp this. The sooner we can get to a negotiated cessation of hostilities. But their neural pathways are now locked. It's uh, the obscene carnage. It's they're blind to the carnage. They don't see it in Gaza. They don't see it in Ukraine. They're. Yes. So they're suddenly defined by war. They feel ex exuberant about war. Yes, it's it's yes. Uh, it's perverse and it's very it very it's very very scary. Indeed, the Belgian Foreign Minister Hadjel Lahib today 
has urged European unions to consider developing a European army, something first mooted by Macron in 2018. If Russia manages to expand, I mean, there's a, a ludicrous proposition to begin with. Uh, expand where exactly? It is a dictatorship that will expand and move a little closer to the European Union. It is essential that here too we are united, that we develop a, de develop a defence capacity together and that we also de develop an army, not only to defend our territory, but also our values. I mean, what kind of garbage is this, you know? Meanwhile, Burrell told reporters that the EU will redouble its efforts to choke off funds to the Kremlin's military machine. Foreign ministers are considering the 13th round of sanctions, the biggest list since the first round in the aftermath of the outbreak of war two years ago. Uh, extraordinary stuff. Yes. Matt, yes, I want to give you the final word before we uh, wrap I, up this segment. Yeah, I can just say that uh, sanction is san more sanctions are going to kill Germany and the German economy because right now we're, we're seeing that German investments are moving quickly to America. They're, they're, German companies are saying we're going to invest in America. Uh, once again, who benefited? I think I said this two years ago. The only thing that's going to happen is that German companies are going to move to the US. And now we have it. Uh, there was just an article in the Financial Times a few hours ago that said that German companies are investing in America. So more, sanction, it, more sanctions are going to kill the self-hating European Union. It's uh, unexp unexplainable what our politicians are doing here in the European Union. Uh, interesting. Uh, I want to make one final point. Navalny was an outspoken critic of the Russian state. Fair enough. In Palestine, there are thousands of critics of the illegal occupation. 30,000 of them have been killed, but European Union policy has not changed one iota towards the killers. In Russia, one person dies and suddenly it's a headlong rush to war. Absolutely, you know, off the charts, really. You know, the scale of the hypocrisy as the Slovak speaker pointed out. Matt Nielsen, I can't thank you enough for joining us today on TNT, and I'm sure we will see you, you again very soon. Thank you very much. There he goes. That's Matt Nielsen. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. Huh. The team that has as one of its captains the alleged boyfriend of the world's biggest music superstar who just happened to interrupt a concert tour to jet from Japan to Las Vegas to watch the game, won the game in overtime after being down double digits. Was it on the up and up? I don't know. Guess what? I don't care. I didn't watch the game. I haven't seen the last five Super Bowls after having watched every Super Bowl from Super Bowl three on. I used to be highly invested in the NFL, NHL, NBA, in Major League Baseball. But all of them, including my beloved Yankees, from the New York nanosecond that Aaron Judge's knee hit the turf, are dead to me. Done and dusted. I don't care. Haven't seen a game. Haven't seen a standings. Don't care. They lost me. And I'm not the only one. So, 
this big romance for the ages that everybody's trying to gin up? Is it real? Probably not. Does it matter? It shouldn't. Let's focus on the things that are really important. Let's focus on the things that they're trying to use games like this to distract us. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for today's News Talk, TNT. Asthma is a growing problem, especially among children. Asthma affects the quality of life for millions like me every single day. My name is Chris Draft, and I have asthma. And I've spent more than a decade in the NFL tackling asthma on and off the field. Join me and the EPA in helping people control their asthma. Asthma is a lung condition that can be controlled through medication and by avoiding things that can make it worse. Three steps are the solution to controlling asthma. Step one, talk to a doctor. Step two, make a plan. And step three, get rid of things that can make it worse. Asthma can be tackled. For more information on asthma, log on to epa.gov asthma. Speaking on the issues that impact, this is the Patrick Henningsen Show on TNT Radio. And welcome back to the program for this final section with me, Basil Valentine, in for Patrick Henningsen. Today, Monday, the 19th of February. And my eye was just drawn in the right there to a story that Donald Trump is being accused of slurring his words indicative of cognitive decline. It really is a case of anything that Biden can do, Trump can do too. I'm unaware of any observable decline in Trump's functionality. He's always been uh, something of a maverick in the way he talks, including that nonsense last week about inviting Russia to attack NATO countries that don't pay their way. But whether or not he's actually in, uh, becoming demented, he's also in his mid-70s, so it does happen, unfortunately, to the best of us. Not that Trump, in my view, is necessarily the best of us. He may not be quite the worst, but he had the opportunity before leaving office, and indeed many people implored and petitioned him to drop the charges against Julian Assange, uh, but not before his former CIA director and subsequently Secretary of State, the dreadful oaf Mike Pompeo, uh, had plotted to assassinate Julian. Now, that should be grounds enough for the judge tomorrow at the Old Bailey to throw the case out. Uh, you can't turn somebody over to a country that has threatened to kill him. Uh, moreover, he is very obviously a political prisoner, and the UK does not extradite people on political grounds. Uh, but we all know the so-called special relationship works in mysterious ways. And uh, Julian is running out of options. Tomorrow, he appears at the Old Bailey, if indeed he is allowed to turn up in person, where he will and his lawyers be petitioning the court for leave to appeal against the decision to extradite him to the United States. So while the case could be thrown out, the most likely best result for Julian uh, is that he is granted leave to appeal. And uh, the judge will then also have to make a decision as to whether or not he is granted bail. Bail, of course, meaning that he is released into the general population pending the hearing. Um, 
it would be interesting to see as well whether the United States object to him being granted bail uh, or whether the judge seeks to impose some conditions on his bail, uh, like preventing him from appearing on television, because, of course, uh, his celebrity uh, would mean his profile is, you know, massively um, ramped up. And that would be a very bad look for the United States, not least because he has deteriorated considerably during his incarceration. So the cruelty of both the British government and the United States uh, in their persecution of Assange would be plain for everyone to see. Now, the campaign to get him freed has increased tremendously in size, fervour and intensity over the last five or ten years and is set to reach a crescendo tomorrow with a large demonstration outside the Royal Courts of Justice, also known as the Old Bailey, in the Strand in central London. We will be there with today's news talk broadcasting live from a site adjacent to the court and one of those cheering loudest for Julian's release will be the actor and comedian and veteran Assange supporter Phil Zimmerman who joins me now on the live link uh, from a location in London. Welcome to the program Phil. Hi Basil, nice to be with you. It's great that you can join us. Um, yeah, I've like been big... like a second uh, second career now, Basil. This uh, being as a, a veteran supporter of Julian Assange, this has been going on such a long time. Uh, yes, it has, and it was very much a minority cause in the early days. Uh, I must admit, I hadn't been particularly focused on it. Um, you know, for one reason or another. I tend to look at uh, the grand sweep of history, shall we say, and uh, active politics. But, uh, of course, due to the tireless efforts of uh, Stella Assange, his wife and other key campaigners like Craig Murray, uh, the sheer injustice, the scale of injustice being done. And, of course, the stark contrast you know, between Julian, who exposed war crimes, and the people who committed those war crimes, the likes of Tony Blair and uh, George Bush, uh, has been brought into sharp focus. And just how inverted the so-called morals and legal systems of this world are is exemplified by Julian's case. It absolutely is. And um, David Davis, the... Um... Conservative MP, who's a supporter of Assange, and he he spoke at the recent um, uh, rally in London at Conway Hall. And um, David Davis said, "You know, there's real dangers of uh, Julian Assange being put into the hands of the U.S. Ju judicial system." You know, he said, "If if Julian is extradited to the U.S., uh, his chances of acquittal will be near zero." Quoting, he said, "This is not really a justice system that you or I would recognise." a justice system with a conviction rate of 97%, largely achieved by a plea bargaining system, which threatens enormous sentences. Of course, it's in Julian's case, ridiculous sentence of 175 years. And for what crime? 
uh, telling the truth, you know, which is what journalists uh, are supposed to be doing. Um, and Davis said, you know, he would be refused bail, thrown into a cell with access to his counsel and even his own evidence, strictly limited, which would handicap his uh, ability to defend himself. And of course, he's already faced poisonous propaganda for the Amer from the American authorities. The trial would be preceded by him walking onto court, walking into court on camera in prison overalls, arms and legs shackled with the explicit purpose, of course, of convincing the public that he's guilty before the trial even starts. Amongst the documents published by WikiLeaks was the revelation that in 2007, an American Apache helicopter airstrike on Baghdad killed around a dozen civilians as well as two Reuters journalists. The American prosecutors argue that the disclosures put the safety of intelligence sources in Iraq and Afghanistan under threat. But Assange and his supporters say he acted as a journalist, exposing the wrongdoing on the part of the US military. The judge in the UK initially blocked his extradition on the grounds that the stark American prison conditions were likely to lead him to take his own life. And I believe he has reiterated his threat to do so should he be extradited. But this was reversed after the US gave assurances he would not experience harsh treatment. I don't think we can take the Americans on their word at that, given that they've already plotted to kill him. What do you think, Phil? Well, absolutely. And that, that rally that I just mentioned, when that uh, uh, assurance was repeated on stage, there was, there was, uh, uh, there was laughter. Uh, in the mocking laughter in the hall, you know. Um, so, no, I don't think we can take anything that they say as uh, as being reliable. And, um, of course, the other thing is that um, the last time that, um, as you said, he was considered a, a suicide risk, but um, the reason that the initially the the uh, extradition case was thrown out at the Old Bailey was, was because of Julian's bad health resulting in the conditions that he'd been kept under. So you would think then he would be entitled to bail on those grounds. But of course, um, having made that ruling in 2020, the judge denied bail and he was then put back into Belmarsh High Security Prison, uh, absolutely appalling conditions where um, John Pilger, his late very great friend and supporter, said he was you know, he was he was being tortured, uh, uh, appalling conditions. Um, then he was put back into the same kind of conditions that had, had, had destroyed his health in the first place. Yes, I, I don't want to indulge in too much speculation. Uh, it has been suggested, as I mentioned to Patrick in the previous hour, that he might be released so that the West can claim a propaganda victory and contrast the way it deals with dissidents like Julian and uh, the death, untimely death of Alexei Navalny. Um, he could, of course, be released on health grounds. Um, and uh, Craig Murray has highlighted numerous ways in which his legal due process has been tampered with effectively by, by the Americans. Uh, they had all his legal papers confiscated at one point, was unable to... Uh, access his lawyers, all sorts of procedural bases on, on which it could be thrown out. But to some extent, they represent a get out uh, for the United States. Uh, and it's interesting that today 
in the New York Times. Uh, they've published an article, the extradition of Julian Assange threatens press freedoms. The New York Times was, of course, one of the publications that WikiLeaks worked closely with back in its heyday, uh, along with The Guardian. But both have been extraordinarily slow uh, in coming on his side, uh, you know, over the last few years. Uh, this piece is by James Kerchick uh, and is given great prominence by the New York Times. So indicating that the uh, liberal media establishment in the United States might be finally turning in his favour. Um, but, uh, you know, I don't think, uh, or, you know, they'll obviously be very welcome in his case. And, you know, we would all celebrate if he was released on health grounds or if the uh, case was thrown out on a technicality. What we really want to see is a knockout win for Julian with the judge dismissing the case uh, on the basis uh, that suggested in this essay that his extradition would threaten press freedom. Anything else in that key point is effectively kicked into the long grass. It is, yes. And as you said before, Basil, about the, <clears throat> the inverted state of uh, reality at the moment, I mean, are we likely to see um, sanity and justice prevail in this case, in this country, which is at the moment, of course, openly supporting genocide in Gaza? Um, it doesn't seem to fit with that. And um, you, you were absolutely right to say, you know, that the, the, the press are not, uh, have not have been very slow to support uh, one of their own, which you think they would be doing. And uh, Jeremy Corbyn um, was very critical of them at the uh, at the uh, recent rally. And he was saying, uh, despite the fact that their offices are nearby, all the most of the press coverage at these um, events for Julian is comes from overseas. You know, and so we can let's just hope that um, this story, this massive story is given the coverage that it deserves. Well, it's certainly going to be given the coverage it deserves by us here at today's News Talk. Uh, we will be setting up shop adjacent to the Old Bailey in the Strand, and we expect thousands of people to be at the demonstration outside. Uh, I think everybody hopes that Julian will be there in person. I mean, I think given the gravity of the situation, he's entitled to be but he has effectively been treated as a terrorist by the UK authorities uh, and often giving evidence at these various hearings by video link or sort of kept in a glass case like Hannibal Lecter or something. It really has been absolutely abysmal. Uh, so we will be there. Doubtless we'll be talking to you, Phil. Um, and uh, we hope that we can make as much noise as possible because... I do think it makes a difference. The more people that are outside the Old Bailey tomorrow expressing their, not just disapproval, but their total revulsion at the way the case has been handled and this malicious prosecution, the better. Because uh, as with the uh, pro-ceasefire demonstrations in London, uh, we cannot allow this gradual descent into tyranny, Bill. No, absolutely. I think tomorrow is going to be a huge day. There's people coming from far afield to support. There's people from Belgium, Austria, Aberyst with Geneva, all over the place will be there tomorrow. It's going to be, and Stella Assange's appeal to 
you know, a bit a big turnout for everyone that's coming down to try and bring bring along two friends because we do need to make some noise. I'm going to be doing a song tomorrow and, and dedicating it to Julian. I think there'll be several performers down there, uh, and we'll be banging drums, and it's going to be loud, and we've got to make our voices heard.